word of God as recorded for us in Scripture. Your word, O Lord, is a lamp to our feet. Paul's vision of the man of Macedonia. Paul and his companions travelled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word of the province of Asia. When they came to the border of Mycenae, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. So they passed by Mycenae and went down to Trios. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Lord, may your word live in us and bear much fruit to your glory. Last week you watched the video of Paul's first missionary journey. After the first missionary journey, Paul and Barnabas returned to Antioch and it wasn't long before they started to face problems. We like to think, don't we, at times that uh, the early Christian church, everything was nice and lovely. And, you know, they had no real problems, not like what we face today. But there were problems, and when people say to me, oh, if only I could go back, if only we could go back to the New Testament church, to the early Christian church, I think, oh, great. Which part do you want? Will you all sell up everything and give to the poor? No, the one I like best is if you lie to the elders' council or the church council, you're struck dead. Hey, how many want that? I wonder what sort of council I'd have or would have had. But, you know, there is always some problems and difficulties. And when they come back, there's some problems start to arise. And this one major disagreement became the first major division within Antioch, within Christianity. Antioch was getting more and more gentle converts. And also the new churches that Paul and Barnabas had established through Asia and Asia Minor there, they were grown and lots of Gentiles there. Now, while the Gentiles were baptised... Of course, they were not circumcised. Just as God fears in the synagogue, those Gentiles who feared God and wanted to worship the Jewish God, well, they were allowed to worship with the Jews, but if they wanted to become really full part of Judaism, then they had to be circumcised. If they wanted to fully convert, then circumcision was required. And so that's what these leaders from Jerusalem were insisting on. But Paul believed that in Jesus Christ, God was offering salvation, grace and right standing with him as a gift made possible by Jesus' death and resurrection. This gift was accepted by faith and earned, by, if you like, by obedience to the laws of Moses. The theological debate was behind lots of other events that happened. First of all, Peter came down and some of his group came down from uh, Jerusalem to Antioch and there they met with Paul and, and Barnabas and the Christians there and they fellowshiped with all the Gentiles there. They fellowshiped with them and ate with them. But when some of the, if you like, the heavies, the hierarchy, some of the others came down from Jerusalem, then Peter and his followers, his group, withdrew from the Gentiles and only ate with the Jews. So Paul then gets stuck into Peter and calls him a hypocrite. 
and turns around and says, hey, listen, how come before you were quite happy to eat with the Gentiles and now you're not doing it? That's not what it's about. And so there's this tension between um, Peter and Paul there for some time. But in the midst of all of it, and part of all of it was this whole circumcision debate. And this circumcision debate was bigger, if not bigger, than any theological, biblical or social justice issue that Christianity has ever faced and is facing now. Forget about marriage, forget about all these things. This had the potential to totally destroy Christianity as, a, as, it were, as we know it. Depending on the outcome of the debate, Christianity would either become a subsect of Judaism, which the people were pushing, the Jerusalem Christians were pushing, that they had to be circumcised because their scriptures, and that, remember their scriptures were the Old Testament, their scriptures said that that spoke about God's covenant with his people. That spoke about something important. And so they were sticking to their scriptures and saying, yes, they need to be circumcised. But Paul, of course, Paul, of course, was kept on saying no. God was offering salvation, grace and right standing with him, a gift made possible by Jesus' death and resurrection. It's not about obeying this part, it's about God's grace and mercy. And of course, as we know, Paul won the debate. And I'm sure lots of people are happy that circumcision is not a prerequisite for confirmation. And so they'd had this debate, which I said could have totally destroyed the church. But no, Paul and his talking about God's grace and love won out. So Paul, Barnabas, Silas and James were commissioned to go to the Gentile church to share this result and also to continue sharing the gospel. Well, when Paul and Barnabas started to make plans for it, Barnabas wanted to take Mark along with them. Mark was with them in their first missionary journey, but Mark, halfway through or part of the way through the journey, Mark decided he was going to leave and went back home. So Paul and Barnabas, the two great leaders who started off you know, spreading the gospel in Asia Minor, have this big disagreement about whether Mark should go or not. And Paul says, no, I am not taking him. So consequently, Paul and Silas head off on their secondary missionary journey. What's known as Paul's second missionary journey. Paul, uh, Barnabas and Mark, they do some other stuff. Later on, in one of the other missionary journeys, um, Paul has reconciled with Mark and Mark is there with Paul and calls him, you know, his, talks about him being his right hand. He does in his second missionary journey refer back to Barnabas at times, but whether they actually fully reconciled, we're never quite sure. And so there, even in the early Christian church, while great work was being done, there was always these tensions, always these tensions, these, these difficulties. And I think sometimes it's good for us to know and to realise that there were tensions in the early church. There were debates about things, that it wasn't all just smooth sailing, you know, that there was difficult and but we know that in the midst of all God was there God was leading God was directing and God's purpose always went out so as I said Paul takes Silas after he and Barnabas had this this falling out so Paul and Silas head off and go around and finally head to Philippi as the second journey continues 
So, Carlton, if we can have the DVD, and this picks up on them going to Philippi. What would lead a first century rabbi to travel thousands of miles by sea and by land, to be beaten, imprisoned, and ultimately beheaded for his faith? It was a call, a call to turn the world upside down. This is the story of the Apostle Paul whose writings continue to shape the lives of one-third of the world's population. A man second only to Jesus in his impact and influence on the Christian faith, and whose witness defines what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Paul takes Silas with him on the second missionary journey, and they go from Syrian Antioch they travel to Tarsus, to Derbe, Lystra, Iconium, Pisidian Antioch, and ultimately they're in Troas. In Troas, Paul has a vision of a man from Macedonia who cries out to him in a vision, Come, Paul, we need you. Come help us. And in response to this, Paul determines to leave the world that he's known, a world that was safe to him, Asia Minor. And now he's going to travel to Europe, and he's going to take the gospel to Europe. He'll travel by ship with Silas to the port city of Neapolis, and from the port city of Neapolis, he'll travel inland about 10 miles to the town of Philippi. So let's go to Philippi. So Luke tells us in Acts chapter 16 that when Paul entered the town of Philippi on the Sabbath, he went to the river to find a place of prayer. This is that river. And it was here that Paul found a group of women and their children, and he shared with them the good news of Jesus Christ, that he was the long-awaited Messiah, that he offered salvation and forgiveness. And one of those women, Lydia, and her entire family were baptized on that day as they put their trust in Jesus Christ. Lydia was from the town of Thyatira in Asia Minor, and she was a seller of purple. She was a woman who had her own business. She had uh, sold these fine fabrics. Purple was a very expensive dye at the time. It came from a mollusk like this. And she and her entire family, all of her children, were baptized in the river on that day as they became the very first converts to the Christian faith on the continent of Europe. So when Christians come here and they gather in this place, this has been set up so that they can remember their own baptisms. And just to give you a sense of what that feels like and looks like, and because it's a very hot day, I'm gonna remember my baptism in this river. I remember my baptism every day. Every day when I get in the shower, I have a prayer that I pray. It goes like this. Lord, as I enter the water to bathe, I remember my baptism. Wash me by your grace, fill me with your spirit, renew my soul. I pray that I might live as your child today and honor you in all that I do. And with that, I remember that God has claimed me as his child and I've made a pledge to follow Jesus Christ as my Savior and Lord. Stepping into the waters of baptism, Paul said it's like dying to the old self and rising again with Christ as a new creature. And so today, as I step into this water, like most pilgrims do when they come to the site, I'm remembering my baptism. I invite you to remember your baptism.
this was the Neapolis gate going into the city of Philippi. The Apostle Paul and Silas would have walked right through this gate as they were entering the town of Philippi to form the very first Christian church on European soil. standing inside the theater at Philippi. This is, along with the city walls, the oldest building, oldest construction in this location. Fourth century before Christ, in the 300s BC, this was built. And it was modified during the Christian era. It was modified by having more stones added to it, and then these openings where fences could be erected, the posts of fences could be erected to protect the people back here from the wild animals that would come up from under the stage and the people who would be fighting them, whether they be gladiators or sometimes Christians facing the wild animals in theaters just like this. So this is the this is the theater at Philippi. I wanted to give you a brief orientation to the agora or the public square here in Philippi. On the hillside behind me, way up high, you'll see the Acropolis. And, uh, and you can still see ruins of a fortress that was built there centuries after the time of the Apostle Paul. Along the one long side of the public square here was the Via Ignatia, the major roadway that connected the east to the west in this portion in, in Macedonia. As you walk into the square, you have the uh, temple to the emperor in one corner, next to it the library, Along this long wall, I would be standing underneath a covered, um, a covered walkway, and this is where the shops were for the public square. On the far side would be the public buildings and the courthouse, in essence. This was the place where the military leaders or generals, the rulers of this town, appointed by Rome, would uh, hold court, where Paul and Silas were taken before them. And then right in the center of this long uh, wall over here would have been the bema and the bema was the was the place where public pronouncements were made by the rulers where people were either praised publicly or in some cases publicly humiliated as happened in the case of Paul and Silas in acts chapter 16 we read that as paul was making his way with silas to the place of prayer there was a woman who would follow after them, and she would begin shouting out, uh, these men are servants of the Most High God, and they're proclaiming a way of salvation. But day after day, this became maddening to them, and they realized that really her proclaiming something that sounded like she was supporting them was actually undermining what they were doing. And so there was a sense that she had some kind of evil spirit about her, and Paul turned around and rebuked the evil spirit from her, and the spirit left, and this young woman was changed. She was a servant, a slave girl, and she was a fortune teller. And suddenly she was no longer able to tell the fortunes of those that were paying good money for her to tell them their future. And so those who owned this slave girl, furious that their source of income had been taken away from them by the Apostle Paul and the power, not really recognizing the fact that he had the power over this kind of spirit, angered because their source of income was lost, they drug Paul and Silas before the magistrates here in the public square. 
And this building that we're sitting in right now is that building, that space where the magistrates would gather. They were generals. They, these were Roman military rulers who ruled over these small countryside towns. And Paul and Silas were dragged before them. And this is what those who had brought them said. These men are Jews, and they're throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. And the crowd join in on the attack. And so I want to take you to another location here on the site of ancient Philippi. Let's go. The magistrates, determining that Paul and Silas had in fact created an uproar in this town, sentenced them to be beaten and abused, and they drug them out to this place. This is the Bema seat. So this is where judgment was finally pronounced. And you can imagine all of the people standing around where these stones are now. And they watched as Paul and Silas were ordered to be stripped naked. Then Luke tells us they were severely beaten or severely flogged. And then finally they were remanded to the jailer. Now I'd like to take you to where Christians remember Paul and Silas's imprisonment and the dramatic events that happened that night. Let's go take a look. After Paul and Silas were beaten publicly, stripped naked, humiliated, they were taken to prison, taken to jail. And Christians, for the last 1,200 years, have come to this place to remember that part of the story. This is, a, uh, is what appears to be a prison cell. It was found after an earthquake destroyed the church that was over this spot. And uh, so Christians have imagined Paul and Silas here. They were shackled inside an inner cell of the prison. No light, no nothing, no, no air moving through here. And, and here they are that night, and, and what are they doing? Well, if it was me, I'd be complaining against God. I'd be saying, why God? Why did you let this happen to me? I was trying to do your will, and yet you let this happen to me. But that's not what Paul and Silas were doing. They were in the cell singing praise to God, singing hymns and giving thanks to God. And at midnight that night, something dramatic happened, an earthquake, which has happened many times on this site. An earthquake happened. And the prison doors flew open, their chains were released, and the jailer came rushing, afraid that the prisoners had all escaped. But Paul says, no, don't worry, we're all still here. You see, the prison guard was going to take his own life. They were held accountable for their prisoners. Don't take your life, we're all still here. And the man comes to Paul, what kind of prisoner doesn't escape when he has the chance? And he says to Paul, what must I do to be saved? And Paul says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you and your entire household, your entire family will be saved. The man took Paul and Silas out of the prison and he washed his wounds and he gave him a meal and he introduced him to his family and that night Paul and Silas shared Christ with this man's family and they were baptized that very night. The next morning they were back in prison. Paul says, no, we have to go back to prison and they were back in prison and the magistrate said, now it's time to let them go. They paid their price and Paul says, tell them we're Roman citizens. You see, Roman citizens were not to be publicly stripped naked and humiliated and beaten in public and put in prison without a trial and the magistrates were terrified when they heard this. And Paul said, tell them, they've got to come and ask me to leave. And so the magistrates came to the prison cell and begged Paul and Silas to leave. They left the prison. They went to Lydia's house for a meal to encourage those who'd become believers. And then they left on the Via Ignatia to go to the town of Thessalonica. Now, I want to end this session by asking this question. We're all going to face suffering and adversity at times, much of it undeserved in our lives, just like Paul and Silas. How do we respond in those times? And for many people, when they face adversity and pain, they turn away from God, or they curse God, or they lament, or they complain against God. But Paul and Silas, they praised God. Paul would later write a letter to the church at Philippi. 
And he would say to them, rejoice in all circumstances. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. He would write that letter from another prison cell. And this was Paul's spirit when it came to adversity. And this is the lesson, at least part of the lesson we learned from Paul and Silas and Philippi, is we learn how to face suffering as Christians. That we trust in God as our deliverer. We trust that God walks with us through the adversity. And when we turn to God and we praise God in all circumstances, we find our hearts lifted, we find strength, and we find God's amazing deliverance in ways that surprise us. I want to encourage you to give thanks in all circumstances. For this is God's call on your life in Jesus Christ. As I said earlier, you hear people sometimes say that if you're doing what God wants you to do, there's no problems or no difficulties in life. That, you know, life should just be okay. And I know Rob and Betty and Helen and myself can testify that in ministry, that when we're doing what God wants to, we never have any problems or difficulties or... Yeah, then you wake up and get out of bed, yeah. <laughs> And so we all face struggles, we all face difficulties in life, whether we're doing what God wants us to do or not. But one thing we do know is that when we're doing what God wants to do, he is there with us. His promise is he will strengthen us. Even in jail, accused of things that they hadn't really done, Paul could still praise God. After an interesting and abusive journey, Paul can still talk about rejoicing and giving thanks. You know, he'd been, Paul and Silas had been arrested, false accusations made against them, stripped naked and brutally beaten. Sound like a familiar story about somebody else? The life of Jesus? thrown into prison. Now, as Adam says in the DVD, I don't know about you, but if I'd been thrown into prison of that, I'd be thinking, good grief, what a mess have I got myself into now? How are we going to get out of this? I thought this is what God wanted me to do. How come, you know, this has happened and blah, 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 but not Paul and Silas. They're at midnight. What are they doing? They're not complaining. They're singing praises to God. They are worshipping God and God inhabits, the Bible tells us that God inhabits the praises of his people. And there all of a sudden there's an earthquake, the jail doors are flown open, the chains fall off and prisoners decide they might decide to get out and Paul says, no, just stay where you are. And the people did. And of course the jailer comes and he's going to draws out his sword to kill himself because he knew that under Roman law if a jailer ever lost a prisoner he would suffer their punishment. And so he's going to kill himself. And Paul says, hey, put it away. We're all here. And the jailer can't believe it. And as we know in the story that he tends to Paul and Silas's wounds, takes them home, feeds them. They witness and the whole family are baptised. The whole family except Jesus Christ as their Lord and Saviour. And Paul goes back to prison. You see, just because you've accepted Christ and just following Christ doesn't mean to say you know, everything's going to quite work out the way you think it will. And so they go back to prison and the magistrates want to lease and Paul says, no, no, you come down here, we're Roman citizens. You come down here. And so, in a sense, the 
that Roman generals, the magistrates, were humiliated in the fact they had to go down and apologise. And Paul and Silas go and they go to Lydia's place again and minister to the, the Christians there and then continue later on, continue in their journey. But you know, how do we react? How do we react to, to suffering and adversity? How do we react when things aren't going the way we think they should? When we are going or being accused of something or, or you know, is it woe is me? Do we want to just sit down and give up, say what's the point of it all? What's the point of it all? Would you ask, well, just sit here and, be, and forget it? Or maybe we want to seek revenge. You know, even when somebody is tailgating us and passes and, and cuts us off, do we pray for them and thank God for them? Or when we see that car pulled over with a couple of flashing lights near it, we think, serve yourself jolly well right. Do we seek revenge? When somebody inflicts pain us do we hope that you know something bad happens to them do we sit there and say woe is me how come the whole world's against me how come it always happens to me or do we praise God knowing that he is there and in control do we trust God or do we trust all the things round about us do we allow people and things and situations to overwhelm us and control us and get the better of us? Or do we, like Paul, trust God? To trust God knowing that he is there, that his promises are sure that regardless what happens, he is there, he never fail, he is always with us. And so that's why Paul, you know, here's a man who's, gone a great, through great persecution and suffering, not only here but later on, but he can still write, pray without ceasing, rejoice evermore, give thanks in all circumstances for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus. You see, what's happening is not necessarily the will of God in Christ Jesus, but the will of God in Christ Jesus is that we should pray, we should rejoice and give thanks because we know that God is in control. We know that God is the one who is there in whom our faith and our trust is. Not in other people, not in this situation. And so we are called to pray, to rejoice, to give thanks. For this is God's will for each one of us. This is God's will for each of us who call ourselves Christians, who follow Jesus Christ. Yes, he doesn't offer us an easy way, but he does offer us eternal life. He offers us that he's always there, never leaving, never forsaking, not just on mountaintop experience and fine sunny days, but in the valley of shadows and when the great storms of life have beaten us around the years. He assures us that we're there. And that's the time we should be thankful and saying, God, I thank you that you're with me. God, I thank you that my faith and my trust is in you regardless of what's happening round about. I just want to thank you that you are God and I am your servant. And so, like Paul, may we pray without ceasing, rejoice evermore, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for each one of us. Amen. <laughs>